Hi, this is Greg from Explorer Maps in Missoula, Montana. We're excited to collaborate with the Trail Less Travel, helping connect people and place through art and storytelling. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world in order to take you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. This episode was recorded on location in collaboration with Explorer Maps. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventure from both near and far, as well as information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn about our international outreach projects at traillesstraveled.net. And now, here's your host, international expedition guide, conservationist, and yogi, Mandela. This evening, the Trail Less Traveled is being recorded in the forest outside Missoula. I am sitting with a colleague in conservation, Matt Masika. He is the executive director for the Ohio Conservation Federation. And I last saw him at the largest gathering of conservation leaders in our country, Wildlife Unite. It's the annual meeting for the National Wildlife Federation. And it's when all the affiliates come together and they implement strategic planning for how we're going to recover habitat and protect our water and combat invasive species, and many, many, many other things that we're going to actually highlight this evening. They are on day 100 since they left Columbus, Ohio. And I'm actually going to hand it over to you. It's day 100 of this epic journey, and now you're here in Montana. So just like a little bit of a taste of what you've been doing on the road up until this point. Well, thanks, Mandel. I I appreciate you inviting us on the show. And certainly I've listened to lots of the podcasts and I'm I'm humbled to be to be on as a guest here. Yeah, we're on day 100 of roughly a 120 day trip. You know, we may touch on this later, but ever since I was a kid and and staring at maps and National Geographic magazines and whatnot, I've seen places like Tuktoyuktuk up on the Arctic Ocean or Prudhoe Bay. And all through my years, I've said to myself, one of these days I got to get up there. And with the National Wildlife Federation meeting being in Tahoe, I thought, wow, this is this is the time. I'm I'm most the way out here and we're going to do this. So my wife, Vini and I. We have a, uh, a slide and tuck camper on an, a Ford F-250, and we have driven the Dempster Highway up to Tuktoyuk Tuck, 1,200 miles round trip, a gravel road. Um, we did the Dalton. We've been all through central and southeast Alaska, western Canada, and, and now we're slowly working our way back home, and it was just a great chance to meet up with you here in Missoula. This is a good time to also mention that Matt has been an, an instructor for over eight years at the Overland Expo. And of course, I am quite keen to talk about overlanding at some point. But we're going to also just talk about you know, the evolution of Matt as a conservationist and as a traveler. So my first question for you is, where did you grow up and how was adventure and conservation and overlanding a part of your childhood? This is a long story. But I'll I'll try and narrow it down to five or six kind of important points, I guess. 
So I grew up in a suburb, a suburban neighborhood on the southwest side of Columbus, uh, not far from where I live today. You know, that neighborhood probably had two or three hundred houses. It was very homogenous. All the kids in the neighborhood went to the same elementary, went to the same middle school, went to the same high school. There was no wilderness, but we still had, you know, our adventures, whether it was around the block tag at night or riding our bikes down to the creek or skateboarding around the neighborhood, all those sorts of things. You know, we, we ran as a big crowd of kids and all the mothers in the neighborhood were in PTA and they were watching out for all of us. So it was a very, uh, a very uh, great environment um, uh, to grow up in, in in the suburbs. But um, neither of my parents were hunters or anglers. Um, they weren't outdoors people by any stretch. Um, when we would have an, a family vacation, be about every other summer, you know, we'd save up and we would inevitably with the larger family go down to Myrtle Beach for a week. So we weren't going to national parks. Um, so that was probably up through the time when I was seven or eight years old. Um, so there really wasn't that that adventure part hadn't kicked in yet. And I'll foreshadow to say, here we are, you know, I'm 57 now. So 50 years later, amongst my peer group, I'm a respected fisherman. I've got, you know, I've got the credentials there. I've caught Arctic grayling and and, uh, salmon and Dolly Varden in Alaska. I've caught northern pike and smallmouth bass in Canada and walleye and perch in Lake Erie and redfish and tarpon in Florida. I've, I've got some credentials there. I'm pretty well known as a pretty reliable deer hunter. I manage to put a deer on the table every year, and I've got one nice buck in the record books in Ohio. And then this overlanding and this camping thing has come about here in the last 10 or 12 years. So between being seven and 57, a, a lot of uh, a lifetime's worth of learning happened. And and I didn't necessarily have just a single mentor. And through this entire process, I've had hundreds of people really impact my development as a, a sportsman and conservationist. Probably the earliest thing I can really remember is um, about that time of seven, eight, nine years old, um, going down to my grandparents, my maternal grandfather, my mom's dad and grandmother, lived in Gallipolis, about two hours south of Columbus, right on the Ohio River. I mean, they, they had waterfront property, which is a stretch to call it that, but they were right there on the water and spending summers down there a couple of weeks at a time and maybe two weekends a month we would be down there. That was a that was kind of a start. My grandfather was a, a hunter and a, and a fisherman, and he subscribed to outdoor life and field and stream and sports of field and National Geographic. And those magazines were always on the end table, always on the coffee table. So as a kid, I was a prolific reader. So reading about salmon fishing in Alaska or elk hunting in Montana or bears in Maine, you know, those types of stories really started getting me going. About the age of eight or nine, my grandfather one day took my dad and I to one of his favorite fishing holes in, in southeast Ohio. And uh, I had the old Zebco 202, and I'm, th- I'm casting out, and I probably had a little beetle spin, a little grubby thing with a little spinner on it. And after two casts, I'm not catching anything, right? But there's my grandfather, and he is whipping this thing back and forth through the air, and he is catching fish right after left. And I'm like, I want to do that. My grandfather was, well, you know, this is fly fishing and let's let's take a step back. And so like the next day, he taught me how to cast a fly rod in the side yard. Like I said, my dad was not a fisherman. He was there as an observer just going out for a car ride. But he saw me doing it and he was like, I think I can do that. That that looks like fun. So I had this wonderfully 
unique I think, experience where my dad and I learned to fly fish on the very same day. So our skill levels were very similar. And over the next 10 years, all through elementary and junior high and high school, he and I were, we we fished seriously. We fished a lot. Every couple of weekends, we were out somewhere. And we had that very shared experience by having a similar level of experience when it came to fishing. So that was, that was wonderful move ahead a few years to college. I was a a student at Ohio State University and my best friend growing up, Rob, he was also there and he was working a little bit more. I was a full-time student. He was part-time. He started working for a rural real estate company. And about that same time, we were living in an apartment in kind of a sketchy part of town and we'd been burglarized a couple of times. And again, we're we're 20. We're not very smart. And we decided, you know what, We, we need guns. So he had a job, a real job, and uh, he bought himself a nice pump shotgun, and I went out and bought an old H&R topper, 12-gauge with a bent barrel for like $35. And though neither of us had any experience hunting, we decided, you know, we've got these guns. We should go hunting. And because he had access to private property to hunt, we started that journey together, and we, we made some awful bad mistakes we cooked some things that just weren't palatable it was it was quite the adventure and over time he and I developed a few skills with our small game hunting and eventually worked our way up to deer so that's where hunting kind of came along to to pair with fishing fast forward a few more years to, to right after college I started working for Ohio State in its biology program which was the predecessor to the Center for Life Sciences Education where I retired from And after a year working there as a lab preparator, working in the labs, preparing the labs for uh, all the introductory biology students, I got a free tuition waiver after a year. And I thought, well, you know, I should take a class because I can can postpone my student loan payments a little bit. I can defer those. And if I take six credit hours and I thought, well, I'll take a five credit hour photography class. And what else am I going to do? I need one credit hour. Well, I'll take a phys ed class. How about backpacking? It's something I always had read about and wanted to do. Um, and Ohio State had a, 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 an outdoor pursuits program that was for credit phys ed classes. You could get an A or a B in a backpacking class. You could fail a backpacking class if that's possible. After the very first meeting with the instructor, who is now one of my dearest friends, Tim, he, um, I said, well, there's a guy I want to know. He knows some stuff. He was a rock climber, a backpacker. He had traveled a lot in the, in the U.S. A real relationship developed there. Over the next four or five years, I took backpacking and lightweight backpacking and winter backpacking and cycle touring, caving, whitewater rafting. We had a whole catalog of courses that were taught. And I started to assist and started to teach some of those classes. So by the early 90s, I was pretty regularly teaching lightweight backpacking in the fall caving in the winter and fly fishing in the spring. We would take phys ed students from Ohio State on a trip down to Big Bend National Park in Texas, and we would paddle, kayak the Rio Grande River from roughly Lajitas to La Linda, different sections every year. And that's about as remote as you can get in the lower 48. And so that adventure, that level of sophistication and a certain aspect of danger and consequences if something happened, you know, kept kind of elevating my game. Fast forward again. Again, these are all things I kind of feel like, you know, I'm growing up through this process. 
In my mid-30s, I had joined a, a local hunting club, conservation club on the, on the west side of Columbus, and I was the vice president. Somehow I got shanghaied into that. I didn't say no. And at that point, uh, the spoils to the victor, I got to go to a, a a conference every year called the League of Ohio Sportsmen's Convention. And, and I would go. It was a great chance to meet state wildlife agency people. It was a great chance to meet other clubs in the state and start to learn from them about how they operated. And on that particular trip, I'm sitting up in the audience and the presentations are going on. And the very end of the day, the very last person comes out, a young woman, and she walks out on the stage and says, uh, hey, I'm going to Washington, D.C. next week to advocate for the Great Lakes. We're looking for a fisherman to come and share their story. If anybody's interested, there's a $250 travel stipend. Please see me afterwards. And in, in a matter of a few seconds, I'm thinking, well, I'm 35. I've never been to Washington, D.C., and I'm going to take this risk. And that doesn't seem like it, it certainly wasn't going out into the wild and staring down a grizzly bear, but I was going to Washington, D.C., and I was going to stand in front of and talk with elected officials. So I walked right down to this young lady, and I said, hey, and her, her name was Christy, and she was with the Ohio Environmental Council at the time, and I said, I'll, I'll go. And that really opened the door for uh, – opened my eyes to the truly the democratic process and having an impact with elected officials, the people that are making decisions in Washington, D.C. on all of our behalves. So it was a great opportunity for me to kind of get started in that. And then again, you know, within a matter of a few years, certainly by around 2013 is when the Ohio Conservation Federation started to get off the ground. My connections with the National Wildlife Federation, Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, some other groups, they said, hey, Matt, would you be interested in being part of this? And I said, sure, I'll take a day off of work and you know, I'll come to the first meeting and see what's going on. And Again, I didn't say no enough, and before I knew it, I was vice president of that organization, president. And then after I retired from Ohio State's biology program, I became the executive director. So that's kind of that long history. The, the last little piece was the overlanding. At some point, my wife and I and our family, we started car camping. We soon recognized or realized that we wanted to go places you just couldn't necessarily get with a Coleman pop-up trailer or a little Class B motorhome at the time. And we thought we needed to take that next step in the Overland Expos or educational programs that are held in four locations around the U.S. And we went to the one in the east, um, which was down near Asheville, North Carolina at the time. And there we learned about truck campers and went, that's the tool we need to get to the places, to get to the parks, to get to the Arctic Circle and the Arctic Ocean to carry us towards those dreams. So that's my evolution from suburban Ohio to, well, I'm still in suburban Ohio, but doing all these other types of adventurous things. Here's another one. Oh, yep, yep. So we're looking out into a, a, a meadow here, and there's a tent out there. And we've had one doe, a whitetail, presumably has come into the meadow, and a second one's coming in from a slightly different angle. If we were back in Ohio, the rut would be about a month away, and bucks would start to be sniffing around, but I don't, don't see one here yet. I'm guessing the, the deer in the back's probably the the doe and maybe the the one up front might have been a might be a yearling so we are looking down on a doe and her yearling 
that are enjoying their dinner on this beautiful evening in Missoula. And it, it's getting closer to the rut. Might actually be happening as we speak. So there might be a buck that comes along. There's been some nice bucks in the area. I'm sitting with a fellow conservationist, fellow hunter, fellow angler, and fellow traveler. His name is Matt Masika, and his wife, Vinny, is here as well, sitting next to him. This is day 100 of their adventures via their truck and camper, planning a 120-day adventure from Columbus all the way up to Alaska. And we last saw each other in Northern California at a very large gathering of conservation leaders. So lovely to reconnect with them now. Matt, in addition to being the executive director of the Ohio Conservation Federation, he's also the retired assistant director of the Ohio State University's Center for Life Science Education. So Matt, I wanna dive in to conservation. For me, conservation and adventure run parallel. For me, I feel like it is such a privilege to live in Missoula, let alone this ecosystem, but with privilege comes responsibility. I'm just so curious about what your focuses have been recently at the Ohio Conservation Federation. For the listener who maybe doesn't have a background in conservation, maybe doesn't know where the funding comes from, and yeah, I work at the National Wildlife Federation. At least I did when I was recording this. We also work on, you know, public lands, access, water issues, the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which would be some of the most pivotal wildlife conservation legislation in a generation, chronic waste and disease, the Farm Bill, invasive species. I don't know if we're going to be able to talk about it all, but I would love to inform whoever's listening out there about your work at the Ohio Conservation Federation. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's a privilege for me to do this type of work, you know, after I retired from Ohio State. I wasn't going to just sit around and do nothing at all. As executive director, it's a part-time role. That'll fill all the time I give it, and that's perfectly fine. You're right. I think probably regardless of which of the 50 states you're from, we're probably all working on the same issues, perhaps from different angles or, or talking about different species of importance. So kind of the top three things that seem to occupy my time a lot. Uh, Public lands is always a big thing. Ohio is a public land poor state. We rank 44th or 45th, so five or six from the bottom of states with public land available for hunting and fishing per capita. So in the state of Ohio right now, I think we have about 660,000 acres of public land. I would not be surprised if here in Montana you have national forests that are a million acres. So this is a key thing that we work on a lot. It's so important for recruitment, retention, and reactivation of sportsmen and women in Ohio to have a place to go and practice their outdoor heritage that's kind of uniquely American. Um, and that includes whether it's mountain biking or, or backpacking or horseback riding or whatever thing that you're into, having a place to do it is essential. We are blessed right now with an excellent governor who has um, fulfilled campaign promises in his first term. He pledged to sportsmen that he would acquire a 60,000 acre, a contiguous piece of property that had been in the public domain for about 50 years that was owned by American Electric Power. This was reclaimed strip mines that has wonderful hunting. It's got 
several hundred ponds and lakes on the property, and it's been open for sportsmen, managed by our Ohio Department of Natural Resources. It was a huge lift for the governor to convince the legislature to pony up the money to purchase this land. I've not done the research, but I was thinking about this today. 60,000 contiguous acres. I wonder if there's any state in the nation that's purchased a piece of land that big in the last decade. I mean, that's that's big. And in Ohio, it represents roughly 10% of our public lands. So we continue to advocate for that in every one of the governor's budgets. We encourage him to add it to the budget, to pick up other parcels of land, and then we encourage the legislature to fund those requests. Another big thing that we're always involved with is water quality in the state of Ohio. Again, I'll say we've been blessed with Governor DeWine's leadership. When he took office in his first term, he started a program called H2 Ohio, which funnels money to Divisional wildlife to create wetlands and restore wetlands, which, of course, nature's sponge, Mm -hmm. right, helping keep phosphorus out of our waterways and out of the Great Lakes where they are uh, responsible for harmful algal blooms. It also funds the Ohio Department of EPA, giving them money to help municipalities manage their wastewater and their drinking water infrastructure and removing lead service lines. And then it also helps fund the Ohio Department of Agriculture as they incentivize best management practices for farmers and producers in Ohio. And I'm not talking chump change here. Probably so far in the first uh, four years, it's probably been at least $200 million with a couple of hundred million hopefully on the way in this next biennium budget. So again, working on those clean water issues. New things that are coming that I'm a little behind on. I need to come up to speed again. Efforts being led by the National Wildlife Federation include an effort for an Ohio River Restoration Initiative that would kind of parallel the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative that has been wildly successful. NWF is at the point of the spear in trying to develop a program and then sell it to the legislators from the uh, the main stem states of the Ohio River. It's a 14-state area. Area. So to try and get more federal funding to do remediation work on the Ohio River, to do habitat work, that sort of thing. And you mentioned this. Another thing that is always um, we're always plugging along is the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which right now is in the Senate. We've got co-sponsors. Ohio has uh, Senator uh, Sherrod Brown is one of the co-sponsors. I think there's about a dozen across the country. It's such an important act. It is a source of federal funding to help implement the 50 states' state wildlife action plans. You know, Ohio's state wildlife action plan has about 450 species of concern. Everything from salamanders and butterflies and American burying beetles to things like bobwhite quail, American sturgeon, things that might be of a little more interest to hunters and anglers in Ohio. But it's a way to, again, provide some federal funding, take some demands off of hunting and fishing license fees in the states to do that work and hopefully provide for a a way to keep species of concern 
out of the emergency room, so to speak, and get their problems addressed before they become urgent or before they move from threatened to endangered and all the, the complications that involves. So, so we're constantly involved in making phone calls, writing letters, sending updates to our legislators in Ohio and saying, hey, we'd love you to co-sponsor. We'd love you to co-sponsor. We, it, we sound a bit like a broken record, but we throw a little new information at them as it comes up. And we're optimistic that in this session of Congress, they will find a pay for a mechanism to pay for the roughly $10 billion program, and we'll get it across the finish line this year. One thing you mentioned that I would love for you to clarify for someone listening who doesn't understand the connection between a hunting and fishing license and how it might fund conservation, you said it could take some of the pressure off that, but could you explain what you mean by that for someone listening who doesn't know the connection? Sure. So I guess there are kind of two things to think about here. Certainly at the state level, our division of wildlife is in Ohio and probably the similar in many states is almost fully funded, at least in Ohio, fully funded by hunting and fishing license sales. All the work they do, whether it's on game species or non-game species, is carried out with money from hunting and fishing license sales. Now, there's that direct input. Other states have sales taxes that go to hunting and fishing. I think a state like Montana also has a uh, taxes from their um, marijuana laws that help fund some conservation efforts. But in Ohio, we're solely hunting and fishing licenses at this point. The other aspect is the Pittman-Robertson Act, which is decades old now. Basically, how that works is there's an excise tax on firearms, ammunition, hunting supplies. There's also a, a, the, the Dingle Johnson Act, which is for fishing and boating. There's an excise tax on fuel. There's an excise tax on certain fishing items that's collected by the federal government. They reapportion that money to the states on an annual basis based on the number of hunting and fishing licenses sold in that state. In years where there are lots of firearm sales and lots of fishing sales and the numbers are really good, Ohio, for example, might be eligible for 15 or $20 million of federal money to come back to do all sorts of things in conservation. And then uh, the state is required to produce a match, a financial match for that. So they will use our hunting and fishing license dollars. They will use the free labor that hunters and anglers will often provide as another form of match. And they will say, hey, we've got five or six million dollars worth of projects we'd like to do this year. And they will request five or six million dollars from the federal government, from those PR and DJ dollars to help fund all types of projects related to, uh, to conservation in the outdoors. And that can be boat ramps, that can be uh, conservation stuff on the ground, that can be fish cleaning stations, it's all sorts of things. And shooting ranges, all sorts of things they're able to leverage hunting and fishing license sales dollars for to get federal dollars reapportioned back to us based on the number of uh, sales nationwide. It's a complex algorithm to sort all that out, but it's something that is just super important to doing conservation on the ground at the state level. Just to touch base on three other things that we're always kind of keeping our thumb on the pulse of, certainly chronic wasting disease is becoming more prevalent throughout the country. Um, this is a, an always fatal neurological disease of, well, in my part of the country, it's white-tailed deer, but it's elk. 
It's all the big game uh, species of, of ungulates, that sort of thing. In Ohio, of our 88 counties, we've only detected CWD in three counties. Our Division of Wildlife is doing, I think, an excellent job to try and contain it to those three counties by banning uh, baiting of deer or feeding of deer, by being a little more liberal in their seasons and bag limits, and by requiring testing of deer in those three counties. So hopefully uh, the division's efforts will help isolate that disease. And, you know, we'd love to say eradicate, but we'll settle for isolate, I think, at this point. Um, And again, we advocated quite strongly this past year for the uh, Chronic Wasting Disease Research and Management Act, which pumped uh, a handful of federal dollars in the tens of millions back to the states to do basic research and mitigation on a CWD. Farm Bill is something that's coming up right now. I believe it I believe it's set to expire this this year. And you know there are programs. The Farm Bill is an enormous piece of legislation and Within the Farm Bill are three particular programs, conservation programs, like the Conservation Reserve Program, the Wildlife Habitat Incentive Program, the Environmental Quality Incentive Programs. These are voluntary programs that provide federal dollars to help offset the cost for farmers, producers, landowners to do things that help protect soils in marginal areas to help produce better wildlife habitat and to protect water, all sorts of other programs buried within the Farm Bill. And and we are always advocating to maximize the uh, available funding for those programs because they are routinely oversubscribed. More people, more farmers want to be in CRP to take marginal lands out of production than there's usually money to fulfill that. So we would we would always advocate for good funding there because it's good for hunters, it's good for anglers, and it's good for people that oh, like to drink water. That's that crazy thing. <laughs> the last little tidbit there is invasive species. The thing we work on the most right now is invasive carp. You know, we've got four species in the U.S., big head, silver, black, and grass carp. Grass carp are established in Ohio. We got another deer right below us. Beautiful doe. Yes, we are always trying to help advocate for solutions to prevent further spread of these invasive carp that potentially could cause a tremendous amount of damage to the ecosystem and at the same time damage the economics of fishing in the Midwest and across the country. And we've just seen a fawn come out, still has its spots, and a second fawn come out. And there's three now. So, And they're all staring directly at the guy talking into the phone. <laughs> um, so, yeah, those are the things. We're constantly juggling all those different asks of our legislators. Hello, this is Greg Robitaille from Explore Maps in Missoula, Montana. For as long as I can remember, I have been amazed at how my brother Chris turns his creative thoughts into the most incredible art imaginable. When we were young kids growing up in Toronto, one day our mom said, Chris, please go take a nap. But as fate would have it, I think he heard mom say, Chris, go make a map. And thus, I like to think that's when Explorer Maps was born. Many years later, we have now rendered more than 60 hand-drawn artistic story maps of travel destinations worldwide, all created with the intention of connecting people and place 
and helping communities raise awareness for the conservation of our public lands and the wildlife and distinct cultures that inhabit these amazing areas. So please come along and join Chris and I on this educational and inspirational journey using hand-drawn maps as the vessel to help tell these unique stories. Please be sure to use promo code MANDELA for your discount when visiting ExploreMaps.com. Matt, you are an instructor at the Overland Expo. In addition to being the retired assistant director for Ohio State University's Center for Life Science Education and currently the executive director of the Ohio Conservation Federation, so you are doing lots of things, including hunting, fishing, and traveling. Let's talk about the traveling part a little bit more, specifically overlanding. I'm really interested, as an instructor at the Overland Expos, what do you cover? What do you share with people? What do you teach them? I would define overlanding as a self-reliant, independent travel cross-country by vehicle, and that vehicle could be a bicycle, it could be a motorcycle, it could be a, a truck with a sliding camper, it could be a jeep pulling a trailer or having a rooftop tent, but you're very self-reliant. You are planning to conquer whatever problems you face on your own or in your group, if you're traveling with a group, and you it's as much about the journey as it is about the end point. It's not just about getting to Prudhoe Bay or just about getting to Denali or wherever you're headed. It's it, A lot of it is the journey in and of itself, not necessarily just going from paid campground to paid campground. We're looking for out-of-the-way places to visit and explore. And I would say that it also has a, a component of finding the road less traveled mm -hmm. and sometimes that's the trail less traveled too and uh, getting into more remote locations is really what it's about and when at all possible kind of experiencing the people and the cultures and the environment that you travel through as far as the overland expos particular overland expo has four four venues throughout the united states that meet every year Myself and my good friend Tim that I mentioned earlier, he and I teach a selection of courses that help prepare people for backcountry and, and overland travel. So we teach a, a course on water treatment, how to make water potable so that you can drink it reliably. We do one on human waste management, which is super critical with the amount of crowds and the amount of people we're finding in, in the backcountry these days post-pandemic. We have a very, very popular class we call How to Sleep Warm. It's beyond just the sleeping bag. It's making sure you've got the right clothes, you've had the right nutrition and hydration, you're using the right sleeping pads and those type of things. You may have spent a lot of money on a sleeping bag, but if you've slept cold in that bag, these are some things that might help mitigate it. We do a weather forecasting class. My friend Tim is a hot air balloon pilot, and weather is so important for a hot air balloon pilot. So we teach weather forecasting and how to work with weather. And lastly, we've got one class that is kind of inspired from maybe my readings as a, as a young man about the most dangerous animals in Africa. Well, I've spun that to be the most dangerous animals in North America. Oh, yeah, I remember this. Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up. Do you remember what my list of the most dangerous animals in North America include? Oh, my gosh. I feel like... 
Ticks were one of them. Ticks definitely make the discussion. Tick-borne diseases are growing dramatically in the U.S. My buddy Tim right now has had Lyme disease since May and is still recovering from it. And that's just one of many diseases. There have been a handful of new diseases just discovered in the last decade. So, yeah, ticks make my list. Mosquitoes are not just an irritant, but they are. Uh, there's a greater risk. There, there have been cases in the U.S. this year, dengue fever, I believe also malaria this year in the U.S. That's not related to travel overseas. Snakes make the list. While they don't kill a lot of people in the U.S. every year and in North America, they do cause disabilities, permanent disabilities. So we talk a lot about avoiding snakes, treatment of snake bites, appropriate treatment of snake bites, that sort of thing. Everybody wants to talk about bears, which kill very few people every year. I mean, oh, if, I remember. Okay. if you look and, and if you say, I remember the last one, the last one's walking right down yeah. there in the meadow in front of us. Deer, elk, and moose are the most dangerous animal. And it's not because they're stomping people or goring people. It's because people hit them with their cars. And roughly 200 people a year are killed in the U.S. from deer car collisions. And millions more deer are killed in deer car collisions and damage to vehicles. And as a group of overlanders trying to help educate people that are driving through remote areas how to uh, how to avoid hitting deer. So those are our five classes. The classes otherwise range from building custom vehicles, outfitting vehicles, crossing borders, talking about all sorts of different regions and issues there, all the nuts and bolts that go into traveling, repairing flat tires on motorcycles, or, gosh, there are probably 250 different sessions of courses taught at these Overland Expos when they meet for a three-day weekend, you know, four times a year. So we try to get to at least a couple of them every year and teach. It's a lot of fun. You get to see all the vendors and all the great stuff that's being done out there. And hear some amazing stories of people that travel the globe on motorcycles or bicycles or all types of vehicles. Mm-hmm. Matt, you've got a lot of knowledge, and I know I asked you to think of three bits of advice to share with the listener, but let's start with a couple bits of advice in terms of, we talked about conservation earlier. Seems like sometimes people glaze over, they get overwhelmed, they say things like, oh, we're already screwed. Apathy is mankind's ticket towards extinction. I think that we really can use our voice effectively. And as the executive director of the Ohio Conservation Federation, can you please help whoever's listening out there with some tips in terms of how they could effectively use their voice on behalf of wild places and wildlife? You know, the easy answer is to say vote and make sure that when you are evaluating candidates, you look at their history of conservation voting mm-hmm. or what they have pledged to do. That's the easy answer. If the only communication you have with your elected officials is at the ballot box – There's so many more opportunities, and I think people don't realize really how simple it is. You've got two senators and a state rep that represent you in Washington, D.C. There's three phone numbers for you to put into your phone. It will take you longer to scroll through and find Senator Tester or Senator Dane's phone number than to actually make a phone call and say, hey, I'm a constituent. I live in Missoula, or I live here, or I live there, and I would really like the senator to support and vote yes on Recovering America's Wildlife Act, or the Farm Bill, or whatever it is that interests you. 
it's a 15-second phone call to their office. There will be a 20-something most likely sitting at a desk in that office with a yellow notepad. And when you say, hey, I want you to vote for Recovering America's Wildlife Act, they're going to write that down. They're going to put a little check mark by it. And at the end of the day, they're going to communicate those results to the legislative director who's going to communicate those results to the senator or congressional representative and say, hey, we got five phone calls today about this Recovering America's Wildlife Act. What's up with that? Mm-hmm. It could be as few as five phone calls, mm-hmm. especially at the local level. If you're talking city council and things like that that have conservation issues that need to be addressed, a few phone calls can go a long way. The other easiest way to do things is each of those elected officials is going to have a website through the government where you can go on, enter your name, enter your email address, and enter what you want to say. You don't have to be a content expert. All you have to do is say, hey, would you please vote for the farm bill? Would you please vote for this? Would you please not vote for that? Mm-hmm. It's a few seconds of your time. Really, it is. And it, it can be very effective. So that would be one thing. I would say communicate with your public officials. And that might be your uh, your chief of wildlife, of your director of ODNR, finding out those numbers and saying, hey, I really like what you're doing or I really don't like what you're doing. As long as you're civil in that discourse, you will get your message through. And and if enough people do it, those messages are communicated. Another thing I would recommend people do, it, it would be great if we could all go out and plant trees and repair riparian areas and build stream habitat for trout and those things. That's not in everybody's playbook. What you can do is join an organization, mm-hmm. join Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, National Wild Turkey Federation, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Rough Grouse Society. Join the National Wildlife Federation. Your $35 membership, I mean, it may seem like a lot to you. It may not seem like a lot to you. But those organizations are going to use that money to do conservation work on the ground. They're going to use that money to leverage state dollars. Ducks Unlimited, if they're doing a wetlands project, they'll take your $20 and use that to get $20 more from the state and use that $40 to get $40 now from the federal government's North American Wetlands Conservation Act dollars. And they're going to turn your $20 into $40, dollars $80, $100 multiply that by thousands of people in your state. And it's a good way to help organizations do that work on the ground. That's, you know, expensive work. So joining an organization would be a a second tip I would give. And the third tip, and this maybe gets its way back to the very beginning of the conversation, and that is give a gift membership Mm -hmm. to one of those organizations. If you've got young adult, if you've got someone that's interested, if you've got a kid, a grandkid that's showing some interest in the outdoors, even if you're not an outdoors person, get them a subscription uh, youth membership to the National Wildlife Federation so they can get one of the three or four different levels of Ranger Rick magazine. If you think they're interested in hunting or fishing, get them a a youth membership or a membership to the backcountry hunters and anglers, right? They're going to get in the mail Every month or every two months or sometimes every three months, they're going to get a birthday present in the mail every couple of months, right? It's a magazine where they can flip through. They can look at the pictures. They can read about these things. And while you're there and you're at it, you can flip through those magazines too and learn about some of those Mm -hmm. conservation issues that might deserve a phone call to your congressman or senator. So, So those are the kind of things. Communicate, join an organization, and share a membership with someone else in your family or your friend's circle and try and get them engaged. Mm, Beautiful. I'm so glad that you mentioned, you know, how easy it is right now to pick up your phone, 
and to call your representative or your senator and ask them to support the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, because that's in the Senate right now. You really should have these folks on speed dial and be engaged and, you know, let them know what you think. It is literally a 15-second phone call. Mm -hmm. That person will pick up the phone and say, Senator Dane's office, and you're going to go, hey, I'm a constituent, and I would really like you to vote for this, or I'd really like you to vote for that. Thanks. Mm -hmm. They're not going to ask you any detailed questions. They're going to put a check on a yellow pad of paper, and they're going to say, hey, this issue is starting to get traction. And then they are going to come back to their NWF person or their DU or PF person and say, what's going on with this? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a sim- simple thing to do, and it's, it's a phone call. Mm-hmm. Support. For example, the Montana Wildlife Federation, I think it's 20 bucks for a student, 40 for an individual, 80 for a family. And like Matt said, that money goes a long way. And you don't also have to live in Ohio to support the Ohio Conservation Federation. I was up in Alaska with our affiliates, Southeast Alaska Conservation Coalition. They have supporters all over the country, you know. I think if you're inspired by a landscape, look at the local organizations that you can support that are doing the work on the ground. So vital, all of the things that you mentioned, participating in democracy, you know, using your voice, especially right now, the next 10 years are pivotal on this planet. Matt, how do you handle fear? Do you ever get scared? And and if so, how do you handle it? Oh, boy, that's an interesting question. Yes, I do. I'm always constantly evaluating the situation and the risks at hand, and I try to minimize those risks. And then when I get to the point where I feel like, okay, I've done everything I can to prepare myself for what's about to happen, then I go for it. I don't try to overanalyze. I'll let things come to me see how things develop. I don't try to overplan, but I do try to mitigate as many risks beforehand as possible before I set out. I've got a partner in, in crime here in my wife that uh, keeps me on the straight and narrow too. So, Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time and energy joining me here today on The Trail Less Traveled. My pleasure. Thank you. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, The Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series, dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world. The show premieres every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream it live online at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere, the show is also a podcast, available everywhere. I have some very exciting news to share with you. The Trail Less Traveled is now collaborating with a small family business based here in Missoula called Explorer Maps. The Trail Less Traveled and Explorer Maps are going to bring cartography to life by connecting people and place through creative storytelling via their story maps, art, history, culture, and of course, conservation. The mission statement of the Trail Less Traveled and Explorer Maps runs parallel, and I am incredibly excited and grateful to the Explorer Maps family for welcoming me to the team. By the time you hear this interview, I will be on location on the front lines of the poaching epidemic in Southern Africa in order to document the stories of rangers ex-poachers, conservationists, and biologists who are working on the ground to prevent the extinction of elephants. This project 
was made possible due to the generous contributions of Explorer Maps. I want to thank Explorer Maps and I want to express my excitement to our community because we have some exciting projects in the works for 2024. If you haven't already, I encourage you to visit explorermaps.com. And that is spelled X-P-L-O-R-E-R maps.com. I hope to see you at the grand opening of the Explorer Map Store on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, November 17th, 18th, and 19th. When I come back from Africa, I will be sharing my experience through a multimedia adventure presentation on the evening of Saturday, November 18th. Set the date, and in the meantime, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Living in Missoula is a privilege. With privilege comes responsibility. Please speak up on behalf of wildlife and wild places.